From Loyola University Chicago School of Law and WLUW, this is The Podvocate. We're law students exploring the vanguard of the legal world with experts from our backyard and beyond. My name is Lenny Reinhardt, and today I'm going to be speaking with Antonio Romanucci, founding partner of Chicago-based firm Romanucci & Blandin. Mr. Romanucci recently had the honor of representing the family of George Floyd in the civil lawsuit against the city of Minneapolis and four police officers alongside lead counsel Ben Crump. Since then, Mr. Romanucci has been involved in educating political leaders on the George Floyd Justice in Policing Act. As you will hear, in the days leading up to our interview, both Democratic and Republican senators indicated that negotiations for this act had stalled leaving the future of police reform in limbo. For more information about this episode and our guest, please visit our website at thepodvocate.com and check out our social media pages. Subscribe to The Podvocate wherever you get your podcasts and join us every Saturday evening at 6 on WLUW 88.7 Chicago. Hello everyone and welcome to this week's episode of The Podvocate. I'm Lenny Reinhardt, and I'm joined today by Mr. Antonio Romanucci, the founding partner of Romanucci and Blandin right here in Chicago. Thank you for having me, Lenny. It's a real pleasure and honor. Good to see you again. For some background, I first had the opportunity to hear you speak this past July at an event held by a local Catholic parish called St. Mary of the Lake, and they had an event called Conversations in the Courtyard. Uh, For the audience, this was a series of talks that mostly revolved around faith and social justice. I happened to attend the night you were the keynote, and you provided a tremendous amount of insight into your involvement with the Floyd family and, of course, the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, alongside various topics of police reform. And at one point in the night, one of the audience members expressed an opposing viewpoint which sparked a mildly heated, but in my mind, a very healthy dialogue on the topic of police reform in general. And so my question to you would be, with so many topics today becoming such hyper-partisan issues, what advice would you give to younger law students, younger attorneys, to help change the tone of a conversation, sort of like you did that night, from what could be an argument into that you know, the mutual exchange of ideas and how does someone get over that communication hurdle? Well, Lenny, one of the things that, that I hope that you were able to see that I did to diffuse the situation with the, with the gentleman that took the opposing viewpoint on police reform and, and, and definitely let's make sure we talk about you know, police reform later on. What I was able to do with him, and I thought successfully because it did turn into a very healthy dialogue, was that you have to be able to express your sincerity in what you believe in. Um, Because people, you know, are all much smarter than what we think they are. They will be able to smoke you out if you are insincere about your position. If you are there just to create noise or to gaslight, then that, that's not something that you can hold up to. And that's why that night was so important because I had never really talked about uh, morality, ethics, faith in relationship to civil justice before or, or civil rights. And once I started preparing for that night, I realized how much crossover there really is. 
because civil rights really is almost a faith-based type of policing. Aren't we really talking about respect one way and respect the other way? And, and that, isn't that what, what church really teaches you for those who have attended church like I have? I grew up in a Catholic environment. I went to Catholic schools for uh, more years than I can count, right? And, and that's what you're taught. And so I realized that night when we were at the, at the parish, um, how much crossover there really is. And, and the gentleman who took the opposing viewpoint, you know, I tried to draw him in and actually see that his opposing viewpoint really wasn't opposing, but we actually believed in the same thing. And that's faith and respect. And then we can talk about civil rights. So what, what is my, your question is, what, what is my advice to, to young lawyers or, or, or law students who are about to get into the world and practice? Well, you have to be sincere. You have to be honest. But more importantly, I think what's so, so critically important in your lifetime, and you may not be able to find it right now, but what is it that you believe in? In other words, what is your cause? What is it that you want to stand up and fight for? What will you, now, now not physically, right? We're talking about with words and with your, your ability to legal right. What is it that you will do, that you will fight for, that you believe in, that when you do open your mouth and you speak your words and your jaws move and your tongue flaps around, what is it that people will believe in? when you speak. And, and that's how you get people engaged in conversations and you become what we now know, what you will be soon, an advocate. You will be able to convince people of your position based on your ability to speak. And when was that moment for you? When did you come to that in your own career? When did you reach that moment? Well, I, I, I kind of knew what I what my cause was, you know, if you remember when I spoke that night, you know, I, I had a, a not a very distinguished career in the public defender's office, but I had a career in the public defender's office. And when I learned about injustice, when I learned about racism, when I learned about implicit bias coming from, you know, a middle upper middle class, you know, white background neighborhood. Um, not being exposed to um, the areas of the city in which we now know to be the violent ones or where crime exists or where people get picked on, if we can talk about stop and frisk later too. That, that's what I knew. That, that's when I started realizing that I'm going to have a cause that I can latch onto. And sure enough, that, that's when I did. So I, I was kind of on the younger side when, when I found my cause. And, and it's pretty much been that for most of my career. You mentioned uh, police reform, and that's definitely something that we want to discuss in this conversation. I, I'd like to talk about that within the context of the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. And unfortunately, it was in the news very recently, and we'll, we'll cover that. Uh, but from more of a, a broader scope, uh, the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act has been largely touted to the public as one of the most meaningful legislation in the area of police reform uh, that this country has ever seen. 
so if passed, could you walk us through what this legislation could do and sort of how that fits into the overall conversation of police reform as we've known it for the last, at least the last 18 months? Well, let's extend those dates out a little bit even further because this country hasn't had meaningful legislation and civil rights. And we're talking legislation, not, not sure. court decisions, but legislation in, in 57 years, not, not since the civil rights uh, legislation from 1964. So it's been um, long overdue that we've had a little bit of an overhaul in the area of civil rights. And, you know, it's unfortunate that there had to be a moment, uh, such as the murder of George Floyd, which ignited, that was a true gaslight, wasn't it? Uh, which gaslighted um, not only Minneapolis and, and our country, but the world and, and brought this issue of civil rights to everyone's attention. So, oh boy, wouldn't you have thought that this would have been the moment um, after almost six decades that this country could have united behind legislation that would make it safer for citizens of our community uh, to not be engaged in unconstitutional policing or result in death because of race, racial issues or, or bias. And who would have thought, Lenny, a year ago, maybe even seven months ago, six months ago, that, that there was any chance that the George Floyd Police Reform Act would not have passed? Look, I, I hate to admit it, but I am a betting man. And I, I would have bet, I would have bet that we would have had something, right? I would have bet that we would have had something, even as little as six months ago. Now, five months ago, uh-uh. I would have said, that's when I started changing my mind. Mm -hmm. uh, five months ago, I realized, you know, having spent so much time in Washington this year, that I was getting fed a pile of, of, of crap, as opposed to um, what I preach, truth and sincerity, in, in, in whether or not the bill would be passed. So had the bill passed, it would have done um, and I don't want to call them simple things, but, but, but you know, low-hanging fruit items such as, you know, mandating body-worn cameras, um, you know, uh, banning uh, chokeholds such as the ones that, that killed, you know, George Floyd, uh, abolishing no-knock warrants, uh, averting the, the awful situation in which Breonna Taylor, you know, was killed, you know, she was basically sleeping in her house. She, she did get up out of her bed. That was her big mistake, right? Her big mistake was when she heard noise outside that, that she actually alighted from her bed and stepped out into the hallway. So at the same time, when the door was, was knocked down, she was gunned down at the same time. So that was her big mistake was, you know, she, she got out of bed. And, and so th those are some of the, the low-hanging fruit items that certainly would have made policing safer for our communities. But more importantly, you know, was the issue of qualified immunity was, was in the bill. And, you know, the Democrats, you, you hate to, you know, politicize anything, but the Democrats would have preferred to see qualified immunity being abolished because mm -hmm. it's the get out of court free card for, uh, you know, municipalities and uh, I'm sorry, for um, individual police officers, because, 
They just basically have to claim that they were acting reasonably and that they were acting within established or acting within established law. And that's it. They're done. Case is over. You're, you're out. So you can see how simple it is for, for officers to be exculpated of liability with qualified immunity. And so the Republicans, you know, the Republicans certainly didn't want, um, they didn't want any change to qualified immunity. In fact, they wanted even stricter standards to, to qualified immunity, which why, why would anyone go backwards? Why, why would we go backwards when we have this moment? This moment is not to be used to make it harder to prove constitutional violations against police officers. This moment is to enforce the Constitution. It's not like we're trying to make anything easier. It's not like we're trying to get away with anything. We're not trying to slip past anybody. Nobody's throwing a pick here. All we're trying to do is, is just enforce, you know, the Fourth Amendment here mostly is what we're doing, right? The Constitution, the Fourth and Fourteenth Amendment. And, and Republicans were, were afraid of that. They were afraid because you know, if, if, if you do the math, as of today, we are 15 and a half months away from our next election. Right? And now people now, you know, um, hmm, let's name him, uh, Senator Scott. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, Senator Scott is now going to run for his political life. Right. Whether or not he has any other aspirations in the two years after next year's election, uh, i.e. president of the United States, he, he needs votes, right? He's going to need votes. And so I thought it was disgustingly shameful of him to blame the Democrats for this being tanked. Uh, excuse me, it was Karen Bass out of California who was the spearhead of, of this bill in the House of Representatives. It was the Dems who passed the bill. And, and then he's got the temerity to come back and, and blame Democrats. Come on, who are you? Now, I saw that speaking of her, she's now running for, I think she's just announced she's running for the mayor of Los Angeles. Um, and throughout the last, like I say, predominantly, ever since the George Floyd murder, there's been a push in some states for at least state level reform. And with the, um, the executive with uh, President Biden just reiterating some of the um, federal rules that he's putting in as far as executive agencies and their reforms that he's trying to push through there, does this legislation, even though like you say, right now, it looks like it might be stalling. Does legislation like this still help push change at the state and local levels? Even if at the federal level, things are at a standstill, is there still that push locally? So I, I think the answer is an unqualified yes. I believe that even though federal legislation, from what I've been told from some of my very, very um, close friends in D.C., that it's dead. The federal legislation is dead. That does not mean that on local levels, we still can't continue the fight. You know, Illinois has enacted um, significant enough police reform. Uh, the state of Minnesota has enacted significant reforms uh, mm -hmm. for sure. 
they have because they they clearly uh, demanded it based on you know the tragic event of George being murdered in that state. Uh, Colorado has enacted, um, I would say, very significant reform, doing away with qualified immunity uh, in in Colorado, and and there are other states that have enacted you know lesser reforms, but those are the three big ones that I know off the top of my head. Now here here's the problem that we face. Um, not now that the federal legislation is dead, it's not going to be in the news anymore. And, mm -hmm. and my my great concern is that um, people, not you, uh, not many, you know, a few select people will continue to remember this moment. But the general population, the citizens will forget. And and that would be just tragic. If, if we forget that we still have a moment that we can capitalize on. So Ben and I are, are moving forward. We're, we're moving ahead with our plan, uh, which should be released very soon. We hope to go public with it and, and continue a state by state, local level okay. type of reform basis. And so we're gonna, we're gonna go public, you know, we'll be on social media. We hope that, you know, some, uh, people want to interview us and hear about it so that we can keep this alive because, you know, we, we can't let it go away. It, it mm -hmm. just can't happen. I mean, you, 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 you know, I know many, it's, it's a saying that we've heard many times, but it's very appropriate here. You can't let a good crisis go to waste. And, and, and this was, you know, a tragic crisis, very tragic. And I, I, to me, it's just mind-boggling. Why, why would our country let this opportunity go because of politics? But sure enough, that's what happened. Now, putting this topic aside just briefly, how did you become involved in this legislation in the first place? We discussed your involvement with the Floyd family. Uh, how did that transition into your role with the legislation and what exactly has your role been? Yeah, that's a very good question, Lenny. Um, so so my, my role with the legislation has been, you know, I guess a long time coming, you know, in, in the sense that I have developed, you know, um, very, very strong relationships on Capitol Hill, uh, both on the Senate side and the House side. And, and a lot of it has to do with, with my involvement and my roles um, in the American Association for Justice, also known as AAJ. AAJ is the most active, most significant, most relevant uh, trial lawyers organization in this country. And as a result, you know, AAJ, its main function is not only to educate us, right? It's not only about CLE credits, but it's about the lobbying. It's about legislation. And so because of my role in AAJ, I have developed many of those relations. And, and that's how I got involved in the legislation because you know, my, our, our friends on Capitol Hill know, um, now know that, that we do, we practice in this area of civil rights, that we know what we're doing and that we have ideas to offer. And so that, that's how we get called in. So, I mean, I was very proud to be a part of you know, the team that was lobbying you know, all, all the major players in DC for months. I was proud to have been uh, included on negotiations and discussions and um, uh, language that, that could or might have been agreed on 
but it, it didn't happen. It, it didn't happen. Here at Loyola, we have our legislation and policy clinic that mostly focuses on uh, child welfare reform and other similar type legislations. Uh, based on conversations with the students that I've had um, whom have participated in that program, I understand that a large part of that whole process is the advocacy and the education specifically towards the lawmakers. And can you speak about those concepts and those experiences uh, in the context of this act? Sure. Well, I, I think, you know, the first thing that, that you need to realize, uh, you, Lenny, and, and, and your fellow students, is that within a year or two, or depending on, on when, when you started law school, is that when you're going to get, you know, capped, and, and you're going to wear that robe, you know, sometime, you know, soon, and you're going to graduate, and you're going to have JD after your name. You're going to have the highest degree conferred upon you by any institution uh, in the world, right? You know, I'm, I'm, my, my background is, is from Italy. I'm, I'm Italian. And so I spent a lot of time in Italy. And, and when I go to Italy, uh, people call me literally doctor. Now, I'm not a medical doctor, right? But you're, you're a jurist doctor, just like an MD is a medical doctor. We, in, in Europe, you are referred to, your title is doctor because you are looked upon as someone with, um, you know, a higher education, someone who knows something more than others. And you have a degree that is very special and unique. And so, I guess the first thing I want to tell you know the students is that when you graduate, uh, you're, you're going to have such a great gift. You will have the gift of having the JD after your name, and and JD means that you will be able to have a voice that nobody else can have but you. You will have the ability to represent your client in a courtroom and actually speak for that client. You will be able to say what your client feels and, and what they want to say. And, and so that's a great gift. So the, the fact that, you know, your legislation and policy clinic, which I understand mainly focuses on child welfare reform, is very, very special uh, because children are the future of this country, right? You is not, not so much me, but, but you, were, you were that child not that long ago. And, and someone gave you an opportunity. Either you gave it to yourself, you fought for it, your family stood behind you. Um, and we need to give children who have lesser ability and lesser means the same opportunities um, to win, right? Because by failing them, we are probably not advancing someone who can help the world later on. I don't know if that answers your question. No, that, that's great. I think one of the things that the students that I've interacted with, because it's sort of an on-year, off-year type, um, like as far as the processes that they go through. But one of the things that would be interesting to hear about would be uh, some of the difficulties, if there are any that you can speak on, about trying to educate. You mentioned Senator Scott, uh, trying to educate someone that might not be as enthusiastic about creating these reforms. And can you share any experiences that you've had along those lines? Sure, you can't educate someone who doesn't wanna be educated. 
And, and that's why I said six months ago, I thought I, I walked away from DC very optimistic. And then five months ago, I walked away and I pretty much knew in my head, I have a pretty good sense. I, I walked away saying, this isn't gonna happen. Because that's when I realized that that the powers on the other side of the table uh, did not want to be educated. Um, they 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 were tone deaf to not only us, the lawyers, but but also the family members who had come. And I'm not, I'm not only talking about George Floyd's family. I'm talking about Botham Jean's family, Terry Crutcher's family. Um, I'm I'm not sure how many other families were were, were there, but. Um, at one point, we brought five different families to D.C. whose loved ones had been killed just because they might have been eating vanilla ice cream on their couch, or they were sleeping in their bed, or they were riding a bicycle, or they were walking away from the police with their hands up. See, when you, when, when you bring... When you actually bring them compelling, factual, truthful, honesty, with some tears behind that too, asking and begging for change, and you kind of see the deer in the headlights, that's when you know that they don't give a rat's butt about reform or change, that it's all about their politics instead of actually doing the country any good. And that's when I walked away, you know, knowing that it's not going to happen. So unless someone wants to be educated, even the best advocate will fail. Uh, it, it's not something that, that you can fight. But if you do find that, that opening, if you do find that ability, someone who sincerely wants to listen and be mm -hmm. open to it, you'll have that chance. And, and that's where advocacy comes in because you know, someone may be a Republican or they may be a Democrat, but if they tell you, I'm listening to you, mm -hmm. I'll hear what you have to say, let me evaluate it, and it's sincere, then that's when your advocacy comes in. I have a few statements that I would like to read for the audience just to sort of put a some sort of context around the discussion that we have right now. Uh, so... Like we've been talking about over the past week, uh, a few statements have been coming out of Washington, D.C. that have indicated that negotiations have stalled. Um, Senator Booker, uh, Democrat from New Jersey, one of, the, one of those that was actually spearheading this whole project, he said, quote, unfortunately, even with this law enforcement support and further compromises we offered, there was still too wide a gulf with our negotiating partners and we faced significant obstacles to securing a bipartisan deal. He went on to say, the effort from the very beginning was to get police reform that would raise professional standards, police, police reform that would create a more transparency, and then police reform that would create accountability. And we're not able to come to agreements on those three big areas. Meanwhile, Senator Scott, Republican from South Carolina, he sent out a tweet that said, quote, I saw an opportunity to enact meaningful change to policing, to keep our communities and our officers safe. I grew up in the communities that would benefit from real reform. Democrats called my efforts, quote, token and quote, half-hearted. 
I came to the table, Democrats walked away. Then meanwhile, President Biden, he released a statement through the White House saying, quote, I am deeply grateful to Senator Cory Booker and Congresswoman Karen Bass for their working tirelessly with the White House, the civil rights community, and leading law enforcement groups, and for their relentless efforts to negotiate a bipartisan bill in the Senate that is worthy of George Floyd's legacy. Regrettably, Senate Republicans rejected enacting modest reforms, which even the previous president had supported, while refusing to take action on key issues that many in law enforcement were willing to address. I still hope to sign into law a comprehensive and meaningful police reform bill that honors the name and memory of George Floyd, because we need legislation to ensure lasting and meaningful change. But this moment demands action, and we cannot allow those who stand in the way of progress to prevent us from answering the call. And I think the main takeaways that I took from those three statements, and there was dozens of statements released from all over DC, but the, again, pointing to the partisan nature of the topic, which it, it, I mean, I can see why it could be partisan, but like you mentioned in the beginning, it's about humanity, it's about, you know, interactions, human interaction, it's about civil rights, it's about just treating each other genuinely. And the other thing that I took out of it is even with that sort of partisan backdrop as President Biden highlighted, President Trump, he was even in support of some of these reforms. Um, and so the reason I read these statements is to highlight the finger pointing from both sides, which you could say finger pointing, but in reality, it's all in how the, the conversation is, is put forth. Everyone wants to put it in their specific way. Um, but with the federal government's um, new policy on chokeholds, no-knock warrants, and body cameras, why do you feel that this stalled now, as opposed to, like you mentioned, six months ago, or as we approach the midterms, why do you think it's stalled now? Well, I, I, I think there was the feeling from the Democrats that eventually the Republicans would or even might agree on an agreed bill, at least get an agreed bill in, and maybe it doesn't have to be the whole bill, right? It doesn't have to be the entire bill, but maybe let's get some agreed bill going. But, but the Republicans, I, I'm telling you, they, they did not want to do it. I do not believe that the Democrats walked away. However, I will say this, the Democrats refused to negotiate um, and make it and make qualified immunity um, you know, any stricter than what it already is. And, and that's what, what one of the police associations wanted, the Sheriff's Association okay. wanted no compromise at all on qualified immunity. As a matter of fact, they wanted to actually legislate qualified immunity. They wanted to make it okay. uh, enacted as part, of the, as part of the George Floyd reform bill, as opposed to right now, qualified immunity is, is a judicial edict. Is, is it's not it's not it's not a legislative edict, and so when when you look at the fact, Lenny, that the fraternal order of police, all right, now living in Chicago, you were thinking, oh my God, the FOP is behind this bill. Yeah, they were. Mm -hmm. The FOP was behind this bill, not only Chicago wide, but but I'm talking na the nationwide FOP 
and the and the major chiefs were all on board with this bill getting passed because they knew they knew that getting this bill passed not only would save community lives but it also would save police lives mm -hmm. right people talk about blue lives mattering well damn it if they would have wanted blue lives to matter this bill would have been passed because this bill would have done what the president and Booker were saying, and that's restoring accountability, transparency, and trust in the community. If I trust you and you trust me, we're not gonna hurt each other, whether it's physical hurt or, or some sort of other uh, non-tangible hurt. It's the same thing with policing and, and, and the community. That's why, that, you know, I, I, God only knows how many times I've heard, well, why did he run from the police? If he didn't run, nothing would have happened. If he complied, if George Ford, if George Floyd complied, nothing would have happened. Well, let me tell you, George Floyd knew he was a dead man when Officer Lane approached his car with his gun drawn pointed at his head mm -hmm. while he was sitting in the front seat of his car. Now, do you think that you sitting uh, in a baseball cap, I'm, I'm outing you now because I, I see you, right? That you sitting in a baseball cap on the street, you're gonna get approached by an officer with his gun drawn pointed at your head. All right, now let's say that if you're, if you're a black man in dreadlocks, what do you think those chances are? Well, they increase. I'm not gonna tell you what the chances are, but they're gonna be a lot higher. Mm -hmm. So that that's the kind of accountability that we were looking for, right, is trust. And then trust begets less violence and better crime statistics. Um, hopefully, our mayors in our big cities, including ours, hear this because that's what it requires. And I know, I know for a fact that our mayor says that that she wants to restore community trust, you know, with policing, but it's very challenging to get there. For me, it's the it's the opportunity for the funds for those departments that you hear about the argument mandating body worn cameras, for example, and the argument against is typically and just my personal experience. It's been, you know, the cost associated with the cameras, the software, the data storage, all that. And those are the arguments saying, well, we would love to do this, but we just don't have the funds. But this was this was the opportunity for those funds. Like this is where that really could have come out and come through so that the smaller local departments, they do have the opportunity for those cameras, because I think those are definitely exactly what you said with the fraternal order of police. That's that should some may say that, you know, the police officers don't want to be monitored, quote unquote, but really that's that's an officer safety thing because they know that there there's a record of everything. So that is to me that that's that's what it comes down to is we had an opportunity for funding and it's slipping through the fingers. Well, you, you look at this, you know, the, 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 this this event, this tragedy of George Floyd happened at the beginning of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And who would have known even in, in May of 2020 that the government would have been, you know, giving away trillions of dollars to help, you know, individuals and municipalities and states in their pandemic relief. And mm -hmm. this could have been part of that funding, right? I mean, the city of Chicago 
you know, caught a $2 billion windfall. Well, I promise you that BWCs aren't going to cost the city of Chicago $2 billion. You know, it may, may cost, I don't know, $12 million, but it's not going to cost $2 billion. Right. I know that. So the, so the funding was definitely there, um, but, but, you know, the, the, the spine for it wasn't there. Mm -hmm. the, 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 the spine for getting there, for being honest, you know, Senator Scott, um, I can't tell you how many times he's told not only myself, but, but others present that he's from those areas, just like he said. Right, in that right in his tweet. Yeah. yeah, he's from those areas. Okay, then do something. Mm -hmm. do, do something positive for, 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 you know, for your constituents, you know, don't, don't make this issue go backwards, but, you know, I don't want to say that he was beholden to the sheriff's association, but maybe he was. So I'll just throw that out there. But, um, certainly, you know, the sheriff's association was powerful enough because there are many more of them. Although their numbers are fewer, there are many sheriff's association in the Carolinas where mm -hmm. Scott is from and specifically his own state. And there are many sheriff's associations, you know, throughout the country. You look at Illinois. I mean, once you get outside Cook, DuPage, uh, you know, Lake, and, and I'm not even sure what other county, but even McHenry County, you know, they're, they're governed by sheriffs. Right. You know, Kendall are sheriffs and probably the rest of Illinois, except for maybe Champaign, mm -hmm. you know, are governed by sheriffs. And, you know, they're worried that they don't have, number one, the dollars nor the manpower to um, to enforce all of these requirements that, that were part of the bill. Mm -hmm. There's a, there's one more statement that I wanted to read, and that's the statement that you released with uh your co-counsel, co Ben Crump. Uh, and it said, on behalf of the families of George Floyd and so many others who have been impacted by police violence, we express our extreme disappointment in Senate leaders of inability to reach a reasonable solution for federal police reform. In the last year and a half, we have witnessed hundreds of thousands of Americans urging lawmakers to bring desperately needed change to policing in this country. So there can be greater accountability, transparency, and ultimately trust in policing. People, including many police leaders, have raised their voices for something to change. And partisan politics once again prevents common sense reform. We cannot let this be a tragic lost opportunity to regain trust between citizens and police. We strongly urge Democratic senators to bring the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act to the floor for a vote so Americans can see who is looking out for their community's best interest and who is ready to listen to their constituents so we can together put the country on a better, more equitable path for all. And I noted in my notes here that I just, I love that call to action at the end. Um, but from where it sits right now, and I think we sort of talked about this already, but is a vote likely? Is this dead in the water? And do you think that with the, and I was rather disappointed with the lack of a response from the groups that have been so vocal about this topic over the past couple of years that there really wasn't 
a response that I saw from the community level, the community organizations. But where do you think this sits right now as far as going forward? Well, I mean, I have to say, you know, it's what I said before. I think as of right now, I think it's dead. Um, I, I don't think we're going to see it brought to the floor for a vote. When we issued this statement, which was very proximately to when we did learn that there was going to be that when Scott and Booker announced that they couldn't reach a deal, we got this statement out as quickly as it could because we did want to bring this to the floor. I mean, what was, you know, even though they're Democrats, what were the mansions and the cinemas going to do, right, you know, with this? You know, what were the Republicans who said they were going to vote yes for it? Were they really going to vote yes or were they just, you know, joking, kidding? knowing that mm -hmm. it would never be brought to the floor. So they didn't lose any political capital by saying, I'm going to vote for it. And then when it went dead, they can still say, well, I would have voted for right. it. So we, we, wanted, we wanted to see who actually had the chops to vote yes for it, right? Mm -hmm. We knew the House had the chops to pass it, right? Even though they needed only 50-50. But still, the votes were there for it. Um, so we really wanted to see, you know, who, 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 who had, had the same mindset to vote yes when the bill was on the floor as opposed to saying in an interview on Meet the Press that they were going to vote yes for it. Do you think that it had anything to do with the fact that I, I hate the way that our election cycle seems to go, but do you think that it had anything to do with the fact that midterms are rapidly approaching? Of course. Of course. I mean, you know, fundraising season is well into gear right now. We're at the mm -hmm. end of the third quarter. We're at the end of the third quarter in the year prior to election. And I'll tell you, I mean, I know this, you know, third and fourth quarters are super important. Why? Because primaries are going to come up next year. Mm -hmm. Right? So anyone who's in a primary needs to scare the bejesus out of whoever is they're running against with with big with big war chests mm -hmm. so third quarter third i mean arguably third quarter is a lot more important than fourth quarter because unfortunately in the fourth quarter you run into um, important holidays you, you run into thanksgiving and christmas so if you're not going to raise funds you know um in the first you know, in October, in the first couple of weeks of November, it's going to be pretty tough for you to compete against, you know, Christmas gifts. Right. Um, <laughs> so the third quarter is really uh, monumentally important right now uh, to scare other people away. And then, you know, once January starts, it's going to go back into full swing. So I don't think there's any doubt, you know, that, that midterms have a lot to do with it. You know, when you look at how many, uh, gosh, I, is it 32 senators are up for, you know, re-election re next mm -hmm. year uh, in, in November, you know, I mean, it's a third every, every two years. So, I mean, it's, it's very significant. So I think it had a lot to do with it. With the, with the amount of law enforcement that was in support of this legislation and the, the folks that, indicated their support we won't say that they were going to support it but that indicated their support who ultimately benefits from 
it not passing? Like, is there a rational argument against this legislation? Mm, that's, Putting that's, yourself in their shoes. Yeah. I'm I'm trying to I'm trying to do that. I'm trying to transport myself now into a, a world that I don't want to be in. All right. So give me give me a few seconds here. But if I were to sit in, you know, Senator Scott's shoes or Lindsey Graham's shoes, and do I see this as a benefit? Do I see this as a win? Um, well, I I think that if I were to attend an event of law enforcement in rural areas or even any area uh, that had law enforcement in it, uh, they probably would congratulate me for being able to, um, to ensure that, that, that the George Floyd police reform bill was not passed. I could absolutely see that happening, 100%. Does that fit into the sort of the law and order rhetoric that was touted a lot during the general election? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because, you know, when you think of law and order, I mean, you know, I think if you go into the community, law and order is typically associated with, you know, a Texas Rangers type hat, right? You know, mm -hmm. and that is that is almost like, you know, the image that we have of law and order and and certainly you have to imagine even for example is i'm not picking on texas although they would be an exemplary state of of a, of a very robust sheriff's association with rural areas wide-ranging you know um, open landscapes the police not densely populated uh, that would be endemic of of law and order mm -hmm. So the topic of police reform itself, it's been central to, to several violent clashes that have taken place between various groups over the past couple of years, um, you know, relating back to now the, the upswelling of groups like the Proud Boys that we saw on January 6th, a lot of these sort of domestic extremist type groups almost are very rooted a lot of times in, as we mentioned, Blue Lives Matter and other pro-police groups. Um, tying back to the topic of discourse, uh, in April of this past year, Justice Sotomayor and Justice Gorsuch, they gave a talk with the Center for Strategic and International Studies where they discussed civic engagement. And in that talk, Justice Sotomayor said, quote, we have a great deal of partisan, very heated debate going on. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but it can turn into an awful thing and to something that destroys the fabric of our community if we don't learn how to talk to each other, how to discuss things with each other, and how to change things in a positive rather than a negative way. And then Justice Gorsuch, who again, completely opposite ideological side of the aisle, he echoed this sentiment when he said, how can a democracy function if we can't talk to one another and if we can't disagree kindly with respect for one another's differences and different points of view. And I bring that up because in my mind, I saw this act as sort of putting to rest the whole dispute about, you know, Black Lives Matter versus Blue Lives Matter, all that sort of fanned up 
rhetoric and fanned up um, conflict between members of our own communities. Um, what do you think the bigger picture implications of true police reforms would be? And do you think that if an overarching legislation or solution was put forth, do you think that would help heal some of the some of the issues that we have communicating with each other in our country today? Well, I'm, I'm not sure that, that policing is the only true piece of legislation that will get us back to the table and, and speaking to each other um, so that we can listen to each other. But I absolutely love what Gorsuch said. I love what he said. And you're right, he's on the, ideologically, he's on the opposite side of Sotomayor. But with him saying that if we can't talk to each other, if we can't disagree with each other, how do we continue to live in a, you know, in a, in a democratic you know, society? And that's what people forget, that we live in a democratic society um, which, re, which, which reside in a republic, right? I would love for us, I would love for us to um, switch hats. I would love to be called a Republican and still have the same ideolo ideological views that I have. And I would love for the Republicans to call themselves Democrats what's that going to do? Is that going to change anything? Mm -hmm. No, it doesn't change anything. But, but unless you can come to the table and talk to each other, that's, what, that's why what Gorsuch said is so, so significant, so relevant. Because if we can't talk to each other, then we don't live in a democracy anymore. We might as well live in an autocracy or, or a dictatorship. And we'll let one person speak for us. And we'll let one person create the laws and enforce the laws. And we won't have the liberties that we have right now. You know, I was, um, I was away last week in, in uh, Northern Michigan in pretty far North Michigan, having dinner at a restaurant, um, which was on a corner of, the, of this cute little town that we were spending time in. And there was a, a man in a pickup truck with his exhaust blown. Um, so it was very, very loud. And all he did, while we were at dinner, not because we were there, but just because this is evidently what he does um, every night. He, he trolls around the town um, with the back windshield of his pickup truck uh, with the letters F-U written out. And then on the back of his tailgate is the word Biden. So you're gonna read F-U Biden. And, and that's, his, that's his method of communication. And that's a one-way method of communication that doesn't inspire dialogue. It doesn't, mm -hmm. it doesn't inspire conversation. It doesn't inspire disagreement. It only expresses a viewpoint uh, one way. And, and that man will never, never want to be educated because he only believes in one thing. So no one's taking away his First Amendment right to freedom of speech, but I think along with your First Amendment right to freedom of speech, you also have the right to listen. And policing in and of itself will not get this country to listen. Um, it has to go a little bit further. And unfortunately, the, the prior presidential administration did absolutely zero. It actually ran our country backwards in, in that ability to have a dialogue. Uh, because he attempted to run this country 
as his own personal fiefdom. And, and by doing that, he, he closed the doors on many areas of discussion. And uh, I mean, look, whether or not you agree with Twitter and Facebook, um, they felt compelled that he was a, a, basically a clear and present danger to the First Amendment with his method of speech. And they cut him off. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. That, that's a lot of pontificating. <laughs> Well, again, I, I think it goes back to why I was so impressed with the way that you were able to change the tone of that conversation back in July, because it could have easily gone the route of two people defending their pers- their perspectives defensively, instead of turning that around and educating each other about the perspectives that you're trying to share. So again, well, I just and, really appreciated and, that. And, and, what we did there, Lenny, we let him talk. We, mm-hmm. we actually, what are your viewpoints? Tell us why you believe that way, right? And we all sat there and listened. Nobody got hostile. Mm-hmm. Nobody got upset. Nobody threw punches. No, nobody did anything. It was, it was, it was the way it should have been. That, mm-hmm. that is the way it should have been. And what did we do when we were done with that night? We shook hands. Mm-hmm. Shook hands. My God. I mean, isn't that the way it's supposed to be? Absolutely. Well, I wanted to thank you so much for for this conversation. It's been absolutely fantastic today. I wanted to thank you for your time. And before we log off for the day, just want to give you the opportunity for any final words of advice or any thoughts for those going to graduate this year or those just heading off into their legal careers. You mean besides getting good grades and doing really well in legal writing? You want absolutely. Something? You want something <laughs> So look, if there's any if there's any piece of advice that I can give, and and you know it's it's a very esoterical piece of advice, but there's nothing more true to it. Uh, at least it has served my career well. It has served me well, and that's this: the little things count. Every time you will take the easy path. Every time that you will say. I'm going to sleep a little bit more if you don't need to. Every time you will take the opportunity to go out a little bit more and maybe enjoy yourself a little bit more when you already have. Every time that you will do things that is the easy, slippery path to what needs to be done, you'll be that much farther from success. The little things that you do every day count. And you should know, and you should always know that once you do graduate and you're conferred, that people will look to you with a different level of respect and you have to accept it. You, you, you can't be, and I was one of them, trust me. I was, the, I was the college idiot, you know, for a long time. And when I say that, I mean, I, was, I had fun, right? I had, I, had, I, had, I had tons of fun. I still miss my college days. But you know, you can't always act like that too. So, you know, the, the, the little things will matter. They will count. They will add up and people will notice you. And, you know, our careers as lawyers, especially you, are long, right? We don't have a physically demanding job. Mm-hmm. It's mentally taxing. But Realistically, if you're 25, 26, 27, when you graduate, uh, you have 40 years ahead of you as a practicing lawyer, Mm -hmm. 40 years, minimum, 
you could do 40 years. You know, I've, I've already done 36, you know, and it goes pretty fast. Mm-hmm. It goes really fast. So th- th- those little things will count. So that's my best piece of advice to you. And I know that you all can figure that out on your own because you know what you can do to improve yourself every single day. Well said. Antonio Romanucci, thank you so much for your time today. Lenny, thank you. Really a pleasure. Enjoyed it. That's all from us here at The Podvocate. Thanks again for joining us today. Our team wants to hear from you. If there's a topic you want the show to cover, please email us at thepodvocate at gmail.com. Visit our website at thepodvocate.com for more information on this episode and our guest. The Podvocate is produced by WLUW, the student-run independent radio station broadcasting from the School of Communications at Loyola University, Chicago. Our senior editors are Olivia Ashe, Emmett Harrington, and Lenny Reinhardt. Our associate editors are Christy Paredes and Marissa Palowitz. Our editor-in-chief is Leanne Joseph. Special thanks to Professor John Dane for providing the resources and support to make this show possible. From Loyola University Chicago School of Law, this has been The Podcast.